Well, welcome to our community of practice that's been changed name with a telcop. Um, because we just keep reminding people that are either watching or showing up at different times. And we've tried this year to try a, a format uh, different to kind of run where we do much more questioning sort of interviews with geniuses in the field. Um, we've been lucky to get some of these great minds to come in and share stuff with us and kind of have uh, a way for us to communicate with experts um, I've seen in a lot of um, things at CQU, it's a lot of talking at, right? And I'm tr we're trying to figure out a way to have a conversation, but Zooms don't always allow for a conversation. So what we've decided to try to do to create a more conversational approach is um, I could, one of us, Michael or I, come in and try to perform sort of a, a conversation interview with Michael about his area. And while I'm starting um people that show up get to type things in the chat to ask questions or interact um to be able to post and michael's reading through those and kind of bringing up more questions so it's more of a conversation uh starter to kind of curve around this concept of technology and education slash community um and michael and i have uh come up with a new idea that we've done to even add to that, which will be added today. Uh, Michael approved it, but he didn't know it was coming. So I don't know if any of you have ever watched Actors Studio, which is kind of this kind of conversation. And James Lipton had this study of the 10 questions you have to ask. And we have created the technology version of the James Lipton 10 questions that we'll ask Michael at, at the very end that'll kind of give us that little input into who Michael is. So that'll be coming at the end. We'll kind of have a minute or two or three to be able to kind of see how he chooses to answer the 10 questions. But I wanted to kind of start this off by asking Michael a question, because as I was going through researching and preparing questions, and as a developmental psychologist who's interested in the mind, and I really don't care about the brain, right? Because that's not my forte. I'm a mind person, <clears throat> which makes that interesting. Uh, Michael, um, and it's going to be weird because Michael and Michael, my head's spinning a little bit. But um, Michael keeps saying that we need to, um, the best performing aspects of intelligence. And, and a lot of the things I've read, you keep talking about understanding intelligence. So I thought if you could give us an operational uh, definition that you use that we could have for a little bit of how would you define intelligence for us for a conversation going forward? You want to start with that question? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because one of the things that happens, right, as a developmental psychologist, I always get, is IQ really intelligence? Which uh, definition? Are you, are you a herald, you know, uh, sort of multiple intelligence type of person, like where do you fit? I get that all the time. It's usually the first question I get when we start to talk about that stuff. So I thought it would unite us if we're all understanding one operational definition as we move forward with this concept of computer technology um, and computer intelligence, uh, because I think that is a huge debate in the field, you know? Um, and my mentor um, was Ruth Noller, and she was the leading researcher, one of the researchers, on the staff that invented the computer. 
And um, she had this huge debate towards the end of her career of, because I, when I worked with her, it was on creativity. She's, she tried to come up with a mathematic formula for creativity. And could computers be creative? Which is a big debate she had. And then she was always trying to talk about, well, we, we can't say they're creative unless we have sort of a working thing for creativity. So having, now we're not going to hammer you to it. We're not going to say this is it. It could change tomorrow. But it's just a, a place to look of how do we look at intelligence from your perspective at this time and a moment, but nothing forever. All right. Let, let me start with the disclaimer, which is always a great way to get a conversation like this started that I think Michael um, C was deliberately a little bit vague in preparing me for this conversation. So I, um, I apologize in advance if some of some of what I say uh, is going to come come a little strangely across. Look, so so we work in in robotics and AI extensively. And this definition of AI is always comes up. Um, understandably, people like to try and come up with a concrete, tangible working definition. Um, I haven't actually really answered this satisfactorily in any past conversations. Um, to try and come up with something at the moment, I guess I would regard intelligence as some degree, a, a thing or entity having some degree of autonomy over its sensing and understanding and hence actions uh, in the world. And that autonomy having some level of robustness and generality. Um, that's, I guess, broadly how I think of intelligence. I've heard snarky definitions of artificial intelligence being artificial intelligence stops being artificial intelligence when it becomes a technology that's just deployed every day in our everyday lives. And artificial intelligence is always the next thing over the horizon that's still somewhat ethereal and magical. Um, that's another one I've heard, uh, which I don't mind. Um, and then there's the robotic definition that people always uh, hand around, which robots aren't AI, but it's related, which is um, a robot is anything that senses, perceives, and perceives implies some level of understanding of the environment, and then acts in some physical way in the environment. Uh, and the physical way is usually used to try and distinguish between air conditioners and washing machines being robots and something that actually has some sort of physical presence moving or actuating or modifying its environment. That's crazy because my, as soon as, you know, I, I was going to either avoid or wait till later, but I always think that makes a rich question of, are uh, self-driving cars AI or robots? Um, <laughs> I, I think just to come back to a point you said earlier, one of the things I like to do to try and stop panels like this, I'm not saying today would be this, but this comes up in every panel or discussion I ever yeah. do, and you can end up going around in circles, is I really like to, to some extent, to try and separate the deeper philosophical questions from the more yeah. pragmatic um, immediately impactful questions. And so when you talk about AI being creative or being um, yeah. emotionally perceptive, I think there's really two questions. One is fundamentally, can it ever genuinely be that way? But to me, the more pressing question is, can it ever seem to be that way in a manner that is effective enough and reliable enough that it starts influencing society and how we do things? And those are two very different questions, I think. Yeah, um, I, I, did, I do always have a tendency to start a little esoteric. When, unfortunately, I was an English teacher before, a developmental psychologist. So what ends up happening is I start esoteric and then I ask very 
pragmatic questions and then I ended up getting back into this weird esoteric place. So looking at, uh, in each sort of area. So what is your vision and either now and or future uses of like AI in education? Because one thing's, and try to get away from that ephemeral, just what, what do you see happening um, from your area and where do you see it going? And I was going to ask the question for sort of each of your areas. Where do you see robotics going in education, you know, and, and allowing you to only have to deal with one at a time and be more pragmatic instead of turning into this, you know, I, I didn't mean the creative part. I sorry, I shouldn't have thrown that in earlier. <laughs> I think the way to start that conversation is to note that every person as it is at a different um, stage mm -hmm. in the cycle of disillusionment to optimism around various technologies in, in whatever field it is, whether it's education or creativity. So I think everyone in this call will probably be at a different point uh, in that cycle, which repeats. Um, I guess, broadly speaking, the, the appeal of AI, and this isn't um, really, really clever AI, this is just some, some functional form of AI that we can trust and rely on, is that uh, there are a lot of gaps in teaching, uh, it's the same. The, the analogies to healthcare are, are very apt. Um, don't think of AI as supplementing or replacing the most amazing teachers that we have, because as everyone says, that is potentially never going to happen or is an incredibly long way away. But think of AI as being something that helps shore up the gaping gaps and holes in many education systems uh, around the world where people get vastly suboptimal um, education experiences, education experiences that aren't individualized, aren't tailored to the, the individual circumstances. Now, of course, the flip side of that is, is maybe a big corporation goes to town on that and uses it as a justification to hand off education completely to a tablet or to a bot or something. And, and we don't want that either. But there is a, a nuanced, messy, complex middle ground where steadily improving AI is somewhat organically introduced as a tool, as a complement, as an additional safety check um, in many aspects of education. And I think that's what excites me the most, but it's not clean, it's messy. There's gonna be a lot of mistakes along the way. Um, and there's a lot of vested interests, vested interests on either extreme, which aren't really helping things, I think. Yeah, um, for me with AI, as a, you know, a cognitive psychologist, I just see AI and a, and a lot of other technological advances, but AI particularly around personalized learning, right? Because if you can, but my worry is just how long will it take to get there, right? When uh, the system can see where the student is struggling and then provide them with the right direction and where they're struggling. Um, and I, I just think once the system, I mean, and I don't think that replaces the teacher either. I don't want it to do that as well. But assisting the teacher by giving them data to understand where the gap is each student is having. And I, I can see AI learning from the student's mistakes where it's uh, much harder. But I think that takes a precursor knowledge from the teacher to know what choices the student makes. Because you see it with the math teachers a lot. Math teachers can instantly look at the problem and know where the mistake was made and then know where the student needs help. But the more students they have, the harder that becomes, right? And so being able to get that cue from the AI, I, that when it can learn how the students are making mistakes or where, I see that future working great. Um, so yeah, it's a sort of a pragmatic thing. 
Um, where, where do you see sort of robotic use? Because I find um, this is kind of, Michael talks about this, this is a lot of schools really want this sort of bring robotics into our schools. Uh, now, as an ex-English teacher, I'm like, I don't know, robots don't really help me read books, you know, so it's like, it's a nebulous area for me. But as somebody who's into, um, and my son, who's taking his first programming class, he's really interested in that sort of a vein. But I think sometimes teachers don't know how to bring those things in. Any advice in that area? I guess it's challenging, right? You have teachers who have a an already overloaded curriculum and then they bring in extra requirements mandated around coding and everyone tries their best to scramble to meet those requirements despite not necessarily having had a lot of formal preparation for it so so my mum's a head of maths so I, I understand some of the challenge many challenges they have um robots um, I guess I think you have to look at the underlying motivation for why you'd introduce robots and other tech into schooling, right? So um, one of the contentious issues, of course, is do we actually have a need to train more people for technology and STEM-related jobs? And that's a hugely contentious issue ranging from we, can't, we, we won't possibly fill the number of STEM jobs we, we need to fill to actually the demand's going to be quite small it's going to be a small cadre of people doing that core work. Um, but that's still not a reason not to teach it and to introduce robotics into the system because the people who prosper in life in general are going to be the ones who are familiar, have an intuitive understanding of how all of these new technologies work. Um, the same as people who have an intuitive understanding of the internet and computers and technology and data science and these other things, generally speaking, will prosper more uh, and, and suffer less in their lives. Um, in terms of how they're introduced, I had a, I had a, he's paused at the moment, but I had a PhD student I was co-supervising doing uh, robotics, um, robotics education as his PhD, um, and just diving into some of the um, pedagogical theory around that was pretty intense and pretty deep, and, and I wouldn't pretend to understand all of it. Um, I guess my only comment there would be that. Um, it, it, it seems to have all come across, I, I know Lego Mindstorms and other things have been in, in schools for a long time, but coding and robotics, um, the way it's been introduced into schools still seems a little bit, um, I don't want to criticize unfairly, but it seems very messy. Um, and it's, it's trying to keep up with a very rapidly moving technology field. Like the, the, the technical stuff we teach them may be out of date a year or two later. So it's, are there, underlying concepts that will stand the test of time, even if the specific coding environment or the specific robots they're working with are obsolete after a few years. Heck, uh, I'll let Michael ask after this, but yeah, because like my son's taking a class in Java and Java is a dead language now. The company's already said we're not going to support it. Like it's not dead in the sense that people don't still use it, but the Java company has said, you know, we're not going to do anything else to support this. So you got what you got, no more. And he's going, why am I doing this? I'm trying to explain, but aren't you still learning something in this class? It, and, and if they didn't, what would they put in? Like, you still have to learn programming. You understand the ideas. And there'll be changes in other languages. Um, but because I don't know how many. I, I'm not being a programmer. I'm not sure how many people. Because I met the woman who wrote C++. And I don't know how many people still use or program in C++. But I'm sure if you did, you still have an understanding of program that would help in Java. Yeah, but I agree that Michael's got a question. 
I'm, I was writing a comment in response to what you were saying, but uh, yeah, no, yeah, we're not allowed to criticize the state government, Michael, you're a STEM ambassador like me. So you're not allowed to criticize the way the state government introduces technology into the classroom. It's not good. <laughs> um, my question was actually interesting because as you were talking about, um, as you were talking about technology in the classroom, you're talking about your PhD student and robotics education. It occurred to me that you and I met in the context where most of what you do in STEM and STEM education might be considered to be pretty traditional. I remember you giving a, a good old fashioned lecture at, a, at, a, at an event and uh, you know, you produce physical books to teach mathematical concepts. And I'm pretty sure this relatively new company that you've got does physical books as well. Do you, uh, do you subscribe yourself to the idea of technology enhanced learning um, or uh, do you tend to sort of lean towards the more traditional maybe because of what your mum did so when I, when I got to um, my current university about 10 years ago I got some funding and tried to rapidly put myself out of a job by basically automating as much of the aspects of what I was teaching at a tertiary level um, and, and not just because I wasn't fantastic at it that was a, a pretty much an epic failure because we discovered surprise, surprise, that a lot of the students wanted face-to-face -face, uh, learning. Um, it didn't mean that the sort of high quality online content, uh, e-content that we were creating wasn't useful, but we had experiences where we surveyed the students and because the material was challenging, they were using the online material, watching it beforehand, then coming to the lecture, quizzing us in person, then going home and watching the material again. And then after three exposures in different formats, uh, they got it. And so maybe you could argue that was a success, but it was definitely a failure in terms of me trying to put myself out of a, a teaching job. Um, I, I'm cautious about the level to which automated or e-learning type stuff can replace large sways of how we teach and learn things given current limitations. Um, I'm hopeful that generational change may solve some of those issues. So people always complain about, just to draw an analogy, uh, autonomous cars, society not being ready to accept autonomous cars. Um, if autonomous cars genuinely work as a technology, if they're genuinely safe, then at least in middle-class uh, first world countries, young kids will just grow up using it and they'll never think anything different of it. Um, people have said the same thing about streaming music services, streaming video services, and a lot of, not all of population, but a chunk of the population has just grown up with that. They've never thought of anything different, whereas it made a lot of, a lot of us older folk recoil in horror. Um, I don't think we're at that stage yet with, with um, AI-infused um, learning. Like, if it's clear that the on a day-to-day -day basis, the amount of stuff that a typical student is doing is, is nowhere near as much as it is in these other fields. Um, I, I forget where I was going, but I guess I think we're just at an earlier stage, partly because I think it's a much more complex, challenging problem um, than a car that drives itself uh, or a streaming music service, for example. Noel Atkinson had a question. I do, because um, my, my, my area of research is in health informatics. Um, recently, the Australian government has allowed IT to be designated as an, innov uh, an innovator. So they can actually, IT can pilot an innovation patent as reported by the ABC. Um, because previously, if an IT came up with 
or if computer software came up with a potential drug that was going to be used, um, they had a dilemma because it wasn't a human being who came up with the formulation for the drug on the other hand. And the patent is still owned by a human being and a corporation and everything else like that. But they're just acknowledging that you can now use IT as a tool for coming up with new drugs and new ways of doing things. What's your views on that? Because that was quite revolutionary for the patent office to, they had to go to court to actually allow that to happen. Um, but you'd be more across that than I am because I'm just at the mercy of ABC reporting. Um, I, I'm not, but I'm fortunate to work closely with a number of colleagues who are very much, that's that's all they do. They look at this space. Look, um, this has come up in a lot of areas. Um, and one way to think about it is what, what happens when things go badly wrong. Um, so, so forgetting about uh, income sharing or who gets the revenue from a patent, uh, what happens when the technology kills someone, for example. Um, and I think that's very much in its fledgling days. Like if you look at autonomous, I keep coming back to autonomous vehicles because it's the area that I know the best. And so I can speak about it most confidently, but there's some analogies there. So they've tried all three approaches. The, the driver of the car, of the, auto, the, the nominal owner of the autonomous car being responsible if someone's killed. Um, the uh, driver who is in the car, although not actively driving at the car being responsible uh, and the manufacturer of the car being responsible. And then when you get to the manufacturer, is it the manufacturer? Is it the coders? Is it the company that provided the software? Um, and so I don't think they've really resolved culpability uh, in that aspect. Um, in terms of generating, like any, any savvy person I, or any savvy company I know is using the tool set that AI gives them uh, ex extensively to try and give themselves a competitive edge, whether they're composing music, creating uh, educational material. I've used uh, AI extensively in some of my business activities to give me an unfair advantage over a number of other people. Um, and yeah, when, when things go wrong, um, it, I think who is responsible for it, who takes ultimate culpability, uh, who regulates it, that's all still, I think, being worked out. I, I don't think we're anywhere near a, a final resolution on that. But they're going to have to take some initial steps, right? It may not be the, the final set of rules and processes, but they've got to start somewhere, I think. Sorry, we pushed you on such a <laughs> political question basis. Um, but I think it is the air, the way technology goes, right? Is that where every new form of technology is always going to be what happens, you know, <laughs> when, you know, faster cars and what speed limits. I mean, we're just what happens and who's to blame and the controls around them, they end up being questions that matter. And for us, I think at CQU, you know, because so many of our students are in regional areas, we are reaching out and using this technology and having to find a way uh, basically like this, like, right, we're not having chat sessions. And it's interesting for me, Right, so I'm obviously an American developmental psychologist coming from a traditional, I was a professor for, you know, 13 years in America. And then I come to CQU in this very Zoom world, right? And what took me two years, because I was teaching in Zoom worlds two years before COVID. And so now everybody I know is sort of catching up. <laughs> in the world, they're catching up to this sort of, how do we interact this way? And I had to learn it very quickly when I moved here. And so learning about the different technologies has been become a major interest for me and the changes. So 
interestingly enough, you had mentioned, you know, you taught, you know, you couldn't computerize yourself out. So in your surveys, in your stuff, what beside what specifically did you get feedback what, so that we can look at what we need to provide for our students, right? That because we don't have the option to, for some of them to meet in person. So instead, what specifically about the face-to-face -face content to help? What did they mention that we could look at adding and finding ways to supplement in our programs? Uh, so I think it, it's good to note that this is just one specific small um, project that I had, and, and obviously a lot of people have done a lot more work. But it was the, it was the, a lot of it was just the things that you would intuitively expect. So people wanted the opportunity for ad hoc interaction that wasn't scripted or fully anticipated, which was what I was trying to do with these online uh, resources. Um, people wanted, even if they didn't take advantage of it, they wanted to know that there was that option of asking questions in a live interactive format. Um, I suspect reading between the lines, they probably wanted some of the things they couldn't explicitly articulate, like that nuanced sense of feeding off the the physical cues, the nonverbal cues that a teacher will put off in the classroom. Um, potentially, I'm just speculating here, they wanted the group dynamic of learning together as well with some of the other students, uh, plus a whole heap of other factors. Uh, and those things are not easily replicable with technology even today. And this, it's 10 years since I did that work. Uh, sorry, I didn't know it was that long. Sorry. Would, do, did you share some of this as a similar thing? So I've sort of done this sort of flipping the classroom technology with my class only because nobody ever meets in person. So I thought if I put a lot of video stuff, put a lot of teaching implementations. And what I have actually found is the students then all of a sudden want to email questions. And what I find is the problem is they don't know how to type the questions they want to ask. And so in their lack of understanding, like I could in a situation of a verbal language, I could, I could say, what, what do you think you're thinking? Because this is what you're saying. And I could point out their word problem. And I could point out their question errors. But in an email, I try to point out their questionnaires, they get offended, or they don't understand that I'm not, that I'm saying that they're wording it wrong. Uh, but I, I just find it, it becomes very hard to, and I've tried by pushing my students, I created a forum called questions for the Zoom, so that now I can unpack the question in a Zoom format and they can watch it. Did you find that, that similar findings in your yeah, experiences? That, people always talk about the bandwidth of, online email being pretty pathetic compared to in-person interactions. And, and that's where though, that lack of subtleties and nuances uh, comes, comes into play um, very much. I guess the other thing, and this, this relates to the sort of more educational startup stuff I've done over the last few years, is that if you look broadly at the people who've prospered the most in the last 18 months, it's been people who, whether it's learning or researchers or whatever, it's people who are A, in a good, stable working of course, but people who've been very um, active, active learners, active researchers who've been very proactive about going, having the energy and the time to really go after this sort of new way of doing business uh, in the last 18 months. Uh, obviously, people who are marginalized, passive learners, people who are more um, uh, not apathetic is the wrong word, but you know what I mean? People who are just generally more passive, this has been particularly brutal. Uh, and I think that plays into anything that's involving online learning with reduced um, communication bandwidth. If you're not really active, really uh, involved naturally in the process, I think it hurts you a lot more. And that's something we, we haven't been able to overcome with tech in any way, I don't think. 
Yeah, that was always, that's a great point. That's always going to be a struggle. Tech is not going to fix problems we have humanistically already. Some problems like well, yeah. tech, tech will find widespread fundamental issues potentially with how we're teaching things. It will discover inconsistencies that we as an individual human and system can't discover. Those sort of things are great. And that will be the same in health and other fields, but yes, it won't solve a lot of these other fundamental problems magically. Yeah. One of my uh, friends and I had this huge debate. He thought that the eighties was the worst music generation ever. And I said, why? And he said, because they had the most one hit wonders. And I said to him, yeah, but it was the first time you could make music if you didn't have, if you didn't know how to play an instrument. And this whole different level of creativity of music came about because you didn't have to spend years playing an instrument. And that's kind of how I see technology working, even in education or not. Giving an ability to reach people that might have deficiencies in one area or no training in one area, but have these abilities in another area and allow them to show those. So even if it's a Rico Suave one hit wonder, right? <laughs> it's still gonna show a level of creativity of that individual and really give us more breadth in our culture, more breadth in the way we see the world. Uh, and that's what I like about technology and how it comes in to, to adding to the world, I guess. Yeah. There was a, a post on Reddit the other day which pointed out that 90s music is now classic rock, which made me feel um, extremely old, uh, unfortunately. Um, I, I, just to come back to something you said before, there's a point, a few points that I like to sort of um, float in this context. So people are obviously grappling with the opportunities and challenges of bringing AI and robotics into everything they do, whether it's education, healthcare, whatever it is. And I, I think there's two things that get done badly. One is people underestimate the amount of precedent there is. So people worry about the cybersecurity of these systems, whether it's an autonomous car, or a robot looking after a, a disabled person in their home. And there are challenges to be solved, but a lot of those challenges have been at least partially solved in smartphones or other technologies in the past. And so you're not solving everything from scratch. And so it's not as uh, intimidating a problem as possible. On the flip side, I think where AI is genuinely different to a lot of technologies that have been introduced in the past is it is, its power comes at the cost of complexity and transparency and auditability. So our ability to concretely understand and anticipate what a system that we've deployed is doing is much more limited in some contexts than other more straightforward technologies that we've introduced in the past. Uh, and one of the really and this shouldn't be a reason not to implement, but one of the reasons that this is particularly challenging is timescales, right? So you can have a system that works on the surface quite well. It's uh, performing very well on the metrics that you've carefully designed for it. You deploy it, say, in an education context, and then three years down the track, you discover, not maliciously, but just through the way the system has been designed, that it is uh, discriminating and discriminating anthropomorphizes it. It's resulted in the end effect of discrimination against certain demographics, uh, for example, and in a way that was not easily detectable at the time. And that's the great um, quandary, I think, of AI and its introduction in all fields. Um, there are fields in healthcare where 
quite plausibly, you could introduce AI in a more meaningful way and it could save hundreds of thousands of lives a year. But you might discover three years down the track that it's selectively killing people from a certain demographic because that optimizes some second, third or fourth level uh, target that it has. Uh, and in a way that wasn't detectable at the beginning. You can imagine the same thing happening in education. It could be uh, gaming the metrics, not because it's conscious, but just because it's trying to do the best job that it can in ways that are not an, uh, anticipatable. And the challenge is it's hard to roll it out in small levels and trial it yeah. because you won't necessarily get significant results from those small trials. Yeah, uh, in so addition, all the, the cultures that they feel. Yeah, yeah. In small samples, the cultures aren't observed. But my argument to support that, 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 but because it's so transparent, at least we can observe it, right? Until in American educational system, right? Until George Bush decided I'm gonna do no child left behind and test every kid in, in America, nobody really knew how uneducated kids were in certain parts of the country because no president would do that because they knew what it was like. And he said, nah, they're all learners, right? And then all of a sudden, certain areas got more funding that never would have previously that got ignored and so the fact that ai is so transparent at least when it makes a mistake we can see it uh opposed to some of these historical mistakes that's been going on for centuries that no one or people choose not to see but michael's got a question i am going to uh paraphrase and and build a question a little bit on something that natalie asked in the chat so she noted that uh that one of the things we are uh, which may be a misnomer or maybe not that's i think this is the genesis of my question is that tech is going to make teaching easier right it's going to make it more efficient but ultimately perhaps during the pandemic what we've discovered is that we actually have to build things in a whole bunch of different formats and things are actually much more complicated do you think michael that tech ultimately has the ability to make teaching more efficient or ultimately are we, is it, is, does it make things a bit a little bit more complicated and we just kind of have to roll with that? Oh, that's, a, that's a tough question. So I'm, I'm pretty um, cynical and brutal on my outlook on a lot of things. So one thing I would note is that while education isn't zero sum, um, if you have a part of society that's getting one level of education and another part of society that is getting a, by all conventional standards, a superior, better quality education, that creates all sorts of problems with sort of inequity. And so with technology, um, I guess there's the issue of the quality and the maturity of the ways technology is introduced into different um, sort of learning processes. Um, and so if that's not somewhat uniform, uh, potentially you can exacerbate some problems of inequity, which is not what we want to do. Um, I've always thought that the most fertile ground for advancing the cause of AI and actually generally helping AI is in things that scale. And so I think one of the things that's in indirectly referred to by that comment is if you are do doing your own somewhat ad hoc custom education program at a primary school with 300 students, which is the size of my students, it doesn't scale at all. Like if you have to learn all these extra skill sets and different presentation formats, uh, it doesn't scale remotely. But if there are ways where you can pull resources to do an incredible job of introducing AI into, and this is just a very contrived example, but into something that everyone must do. So statistics education, um, stats education, for example, um, there's the potential for throwing a lot of resource and it will take a lot of resource to create something that is 
qualitatively a much better learning experience than people doing it on an ad hoc basis in their own school or their, even their own classroom. Um, I, I know that the overheads on getting familiarity with all these tools uh, is quite significant and they change uh, regularly. Um, even flash dying um, last year, I think it was, caused a whole heap of problems with a lot of online learning resources. Uh, and so doing this individually is doomed to fail. Um, doing it systematically at a higher level, I think you have a chance. And to support Michael, uh, the question for me accidentally comes across the sense of reductionism, right? I remember being a teacher before computers and I had to write my grade book out in a thing. And I'm telling you how much time it took for me to calculate grades for students opposed to putting them into Excel and then putting them into a gradebook software and now putting it into Moodle, right? So in a sense, that did make my job easier because I used to have to write all these grades down, calculate all these percentages, if this was this percentage. I mean, people really didn't even have percentages in the 80s and 90s teach because why would they? They didn't have the, it's much harder to calculate. So that, the problem is what we do is we look at the technology that doesn't make it easier and say it doesn't. And then we ignore the technology that did make our job easier, easier. Um, because anybody who remembers making photocopies with the old spinning thing with the ink plots, you know, I'm pretty sure a copy machine made my life a lot easier. Forget a copy machine. I can just send an email to everybody and they don't have access to it. So it, there is like, I still remember the, the teachers that would be in the photocopy room every Monday morning or and making copies for the week. And so there, there is this sense that technology does make it easier. I do think it is not clear yet if it actually makes that the learning that that moment when somebody doesn't get something and does get something right. But there's a lot of nebulous parts around that moment that happen that build to it happening that I think that we can use technology to make things easier. Right. But the reality is um, anybody who's ever had to teach a kid to read realizes it's just a lot of work, whichever way you go because one day they can't and one day they can't and you don't get the difference and you don't know why they, you know what I mean? And I think that gets it in this nebulous place. Yeah. But um, you know, go ahead, Michael. No, 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 that, um, I forgot what I was gonna say. I got distracted by Michael saying he's too young to, um, you got uh, purple ink all over your fingers from these machines. Oh, you've never seen that? Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that old. What it was is you had one copy and it was all purple ink and paper would come in and you'd roll it and it would shoot out and it would basically make a risograph printing on it. And it was, you know, and then you had um, like overhead projectors. It was awesome. I was watching a show the other day and this, uh, well, no, it's the new super, the new suicide squads. They're, my son want to watch it, but she, there's an overhead projector in the room. They're like, what is that thing? She's the girl, she's a Gen Zer, they call her. And she said, he says, an overhead projector. Like, do you ever use it? Like, no, then why is it here? Because you will still go to some universities. And for some reason, in the back of the room, there's still an overhead projector. I don't know if they do it just in case. But what's even funnier about it is they don't have the vellum rule, which makes it useless, right? Because math teachers always had the vellum rule so they could write and roll, write and roll, you know, the right roll. Um, one of the things I always show, tell the people that I think is interesting is um, the arguments we talk about, like TV or computer or the phone ruining the brain, changing the mind. You know, these were the same exact arguments when the pencil was invented. 
Um, you know, because they were like, wait, you won't have to memorize scripture anymore. You won't have to memorize the books. You can just write them down. Your mind will turn to mush. Like they were really worried that the way that, that the minds will work. And I always say that technology gives our minds to ability to work a different way, not to work any less or like it, we, we did more before, where it's just different ways of using the mind. Um, but you, you, you do have to be careful, right? Because big tech interests will turn, corporate interests will go around and turn and use that as a blanket justification for mm, everything, mm. right? Uh, without necessarily enough due diligence. And there are examples like the, everyone always complains about email, but there's increasing scientific evidence, well, not scientific, but quantitative evidence that email is actually a net drain in certain contexts and is actually a negative, not just something that's annoying. Um, and I, my research field is in the area of navigation systems. Uh, and there's a lot of interest. We've only had GPS on our phone for um, 14 years now since the iPhone really widespread. Uh, and there's some fascinating sort of speculation that we are losing parts of our spatial memory um, because of our reliance on these devices and spatial memory has um, is at least a good indicator of things like um, dementia and Alzheimer's. And so it's not necessarily causally related, but there's all these fascinating interplays between our increasing reliance on technology, which makes life easier in the short term, but all sorts of potential long term ramifications and that we don't really understand yet. Um, one of the things you mentioned before too, the George Bush no student left behind, coincidentally, I grandiosely named my first education related grant that as well. It was, it was no student left behind. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> but one of the big questions, and once again, the parallel with healthcare is very apparent. If you have a, an AI education tool, um, how do you decide, who decides and how do you decide whether it is morally justifiable to use that to provide a not as good but better than nothing education experience to people who would otherwise arguably get no benefit it's the same for reduced standards of healthcare in developing countries how do you can you make that justification how do you decide that if you had an educational tool based on ai that is not as good as a teacher but will help to some extent how do you make the decision about whether to deploy it or not? And who makes that decision? Um, those are incredibly tricky questions to answer. And if you take a purely utilitarian view to it over a short time frame, you might get stuck in all sorts of horrible dystopian future scenarios. So these are some of the things that I don't have to grapple with directly, but I'm very interested in. Yeah, and as a, so my university I worked at was a historical black college and university. Right. So I, in America, dealt with a lot of minority scenarios. And uh, that's not even considering the counter uh, part. Um, there is so much research with African-Americans, specifically males, that being in a school is the worst place for them, that the negative treatment they get in school. And so you, know, you start to argue, would it be better to give them some sort of AI? Because then if they go to we haven't, in, like in America, the researchers, we find a way to make universities more open to people of diversity, but we haven't found a way to put people in their communities to be more open to diversity. And they end up just getting such a subpar education. You know, it's an interesting point. Like when and where and how do you add this? Does it work? Michael has a question. 
That's it. I'm just thinking about um, what Michael was saying about. Uh, yeah, I'm just. Uh, I know it's distracted by the the chat. <laughs> um, the uh, what Michael was saying about technology in the classroom and, and providing a subpar experience and but it's better than nothing. I mean, if it, it is, have you have you had experience with using AI in the classroom and? It, as a mechanism to improve students' learning experience, or do you, again, is, is, is your argument that there, there's no real benefit over the face-to-face -face experience? Um, I haven't done, used AI directly in the classroom at all. I have used AI to create didactic material um, for various business purposes. Um, and, and I haven't had very sort of lofty, it's just been, has it earned money or not? And it has. And mm. so it met that very simplified set of criteria. I guess to, to say what is usually said in this scenario, if you have high quality, uh, individualized face-to-face -face teaching, it's very hard to, to um, compete with that, with any technologies in the foreseeable future. It's the question of how far down that scale of people who don't have that access, who come from communities with, who are under-resourced, um, who perhaps can't learn on normal timescales because of uh, domestic disruptions, but are still keen to learn, how much do you fill in those gaps with a substandard but still better than, arguably better than nothing uh, set of alternative education resources, some of which could be based on tech and AI? It's an incredibly complex question, I think. Just to throw a philosophic monkey wrench in, right? But that exists already, right? Because we already have schools that have substandard humans sitting in the room, right? When, because um, one of my, and so we say like, oh, what if we give them a substandard AI? Well, some would argue that substandard AI would be better than the substandard human that might be in the room. And I'm not saying it is or isn't, I'm just saying it's a question. Because uh, one of my PhD students who's super interested in regional remote areas, and he's a calc guy. And he's like, the hardest thing he can find is in the regional remote areas, nobody goes there to teach calc. And they don't get a Calc teacher. And even, and then what happens is these students, because we had a conversation with a professor at ANU, um, and I knew his background in learning wasn't as clear as mine, because he says, I get the same students you get. And I go, I don't know that they're the same. He goes, well, I asked them if they know this material, and they say no. And I respond with, they say no, because they have forgotten it, where my students say no, because they never learned it. So what happens is your students are relearning it and then they understand it faster because it was shown to them at some place, which is astronomically different from a student who never learned it, but they both say the same thing. I don't know. No. Like you ask them a question, they just say, I don't know. And, and as a, if you're the technology creator, you have an ultimate, well, you arguably have an ultimate responsibility, which is you run the risk of implementing a substandard system that is seen to sort of work at scale and to be very, and a very effective use of resources. And governments will be inevitably tempted to implement that as their standard operational procedure, as opposed to a stopgap. Uh, and that that can lead to all sorts of very undesirable outcomes as well. And, and you see that happen time and time again. Something that was meant to be a stopgap, which was known to be substandard, becomes the standard operating model. And we don't really want that, I don't think. There's nothing I love more than the tech guy questioning the morality of the tech. <laughs> it's so, it's a refreshing as sort of a philosophical it's person. This is the epiphany I've had talking to Michael in this last hour. And it was at the very beginning, I went, wait. 
he doesn't actually use that much technology in his classroom. <laughs> and uh, it never really occurred to me prior than that, because obviously, very successful professor in the field of technology, uh, ARC Laureate Fellow, you know, uh, relatively recently, by the way, Michael, congratulations. Um, and, you know, and it's really interesting to hear him talk about that disconnect between uh, not disconnect, disconnect is not the right word, but that, you know, that idea that, that ultimately uh, uh, picking things apart here, that idea that no, I, that nothing really beats teaching things face to face. And now that I've picked that up, I, it's very consistent with what I know about Michael, but I, it didn't occur to me prior to this hour that that was, that was there. So, so thank you for that, I suppose, would be my, my response. But you had your Telcop 10 or whatever, Telcop questionnaire, Robert. Yeah, well, I was going to go till five because it's only 10 minutes. I was going to, I was okay. going <laughs> to, but I can start now and see if it generates question off of it. But I was going to wait till 155, but seeing as you brought it up and uh, this is less of a hot seat scenario, Michael. So I could see that I've really enjoyed a lot of your responses. So I was sort of caught up in the conversation. I, I thought for me, there, uh, there was a lot of new ways to look at not just education, but thinking about somebody from a tech point that cares about somebody misusing tech in education. Um, whereas from my point of view, I've always been trying to use it positively, not actually thinking about it, because I'm not the arbiter of the tech, I'm always the user. So I don't, I just love hearing that kind of care. I think it's a testament to you as an educator and a technology researcher. So our 10 questions. So what is your favorite technology word? Hack. Hack. Ah. Because, what because, is your... because so much of the field and what makes the technology field successful is fundamentally built on a cascading system of hacks. Ah, okay. What is your least favorite technology word? Oh, one. Yes, that's the way it works. Welcome okay. to James Lipton. Probably, <laughs> probably AI. Oh, yeah. It's funny because mine was hack. <laughs> because I think it's this thing that everybody thinks they know, but no one really does. Like, yeah, if I figure out your password, he hacked in. I just guessed. <laughs> like, so, yeah. Um, what technology turns you on? Um, so this is going to sound really boring, but I am, I, what really gets me going is boring incremental advances in tech that make wow. a difference. Um, I think people overemphasize the Hail Mary amazing revolutionary technologies that most often don't eventuate and underestimate the effect that steady incremental progress will have on transforming, hopefully for the positive, uh, most of society. Cool. What technology turns you off? Oh, um. I think this is probably a little unfair and, and to be honest, probably a little hypocritical, but robotic process automation turns me off in many respects because it is, it is an approach to automation that is deliberately less ambitious in its scope and deliberately targets replacing humans. Um, and the reality is all of these texts are going to disrupt jobs, employment, um, they will also create new opportunities and employment as well. That's happened time and time again since the Industrial Revolution and beforehand. 
but the the very definition or some of the definitions i've seen of this rpa process robotic process automation is to take an existing process that humans do really well uh, and replace it with automation um, and and maybe i'm just saying they should um, garnish it a bit more but it's just so explicitly about replacing the human um, anti-amazon huh well, no, no, everyone does it and it, it is going to be a yeah. part of the process, but the, the way the term is phrased and defined is perhaps oh. very narrowly focused on that, that negative, I think. What technology sound or noise do you love? Oh, man. <laughs> Um, By the way, if you're watching, I, I love social contact, and so um, I love the WhatsApp chime when my WhatsApp. Oh, yeah. Go. It's just a little dopamine hit. What text? What technology sound or noise do you hate? A new email. A new email. <laughs> Mine is the <laughs> which we used to listen to to get online. <laughs> what is your favorite technology slang word? I've already said hack. Well, yeah, but slangs, I was using, I had to alter that because it's supposed it was, what's your favorite dirty word? And I was thinking, but I was thinking like technology sort of acronym slang word. Oh, can you give me an example, Mr. Quizma? Yeah, um, what, what's the, um, what's it? YOLO is one, you only live once. Um, but at least, Favorite new acronyms of um, technology that the, become new words. The, the word, I don't think it's tech specific, but we use it a lot, is uh, finagle. Oh, okay. Finagle something. Uh, I really nice. like that one. I like hack, finagle, um, all these cobble together. I like these terms that represent how messy and uh, non-glamorous a lot of this process is. See, mine would be foobar. Foobar is good. Hopefully not used too often, but yes. <laughs> What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Oh, I got so many. Um, when I was when I was more ambitious and energetic, I would say a writer um, or something like that. Um, I think now that my job is so periodically stressful, I'd love to be a gardener. Nice. <laughs> and that very therapeutic. <laughs> what profession would you not like to do? Um. Anything, this is going to sound like I'm a horrible person, but anything that requires even more reserve of empathy for other people, because I regularly exhaust mine on a daily basis um, and <laughs> pushed me any further, I think I would snap. So our last question, if technology heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Oh man, no prep for these questions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> whatsoever look it's the it's the cliche right i i think the um they made things better i think is is all we can ask in our life and that could be a remarkably small thing or a transformative thing but you left a net positive impact on the world um i think that would be a great thing yeah <laughs> so um you can give us your feedback this is the first time we've done that but by the way i'm i'm a huge drama person as an ex-english teacher i've watched so many of and everybody hates the questions and they all know what they're going to be and they still hate them at the last minute like because they're just that because you really find some of these things change in the moment you're in and uh i feel that they let us get to know you slightly different than asking you to be this only tell us about technology guy so great job being our first 
person to go through the guinea pig. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Look, it's, it's, it's been great. Um, I guess, yeah, it took me back a bit because most of the things I, I do a lot of this stuff and most of the things I do like this have been far more structured, far more uh, predictable. Um, and so I think you will get much more raw, authentic responses from people in the program, assuming they're not overawed. And I, I'd suggest maybe not doing this to someone who is too shy and junior in their career because they might just clam up under the pressure. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's been really good. And also to sort of listen to your, what you're saying as you say it, which is not necessarily what you would have planned to say um, has been fun. Yeah, we're trying to make this be much more of a conversation around tech where we get you guys to come in and we converse and are all sharing and getting people to share in. I do think we have so, I mean, in this, this is the best we can do in a technological world to create more conversations and not like, you know what question's coming. I know what answer you're going to say. And all of a sudden we turn into this, these trope conversations. And um, Michael and I have, kind of an ability to be weird and zany and get sometimes the, between the two of us, the topics get a lot of difference in them. But for me, this was really great. I really enjoyed listening and uh, hearing your perspective, which all of it was shocking I, in a great way. I, I was really impressed. So it was a great experience. Indeed. Thank you so much for coming, Michael. Everybody's slowly disappearing. Everyone's got a two o'clock meeting, but thank you everybody else for, uh, for coming along as well. I hope it's been really interesting and, uh, and helpful. And, Only uh, tell peers it was a good experience, Michael, because then we won't get anybody if you like tell <laughs> Well, I will. I'll talk you up. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming, Michael, and we'll give you a, we'll give you a virtual round of applause. There we go. Awesome. Do you want me to stay on the call for the other thing we were doing or what do you want me to do? I'll send you a link uh, okay. because this one gets recorded uh, for the okay. telcop. So I'll send you a link and we'll record the other one okay. separately. Awesome. Bye. Have a great day. Thanks.